I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 John chapter 5. We talk about living by faith. There's a lot of misunderstanding about faith. There's a lot of misunderstanding about truth. There are a lot of people that have a lot of opinions, and most of them are wrong. And they're off base. They question historical facts. They undermine truth. They say things like this. Who are you to tell me what is right and what is wrong? I have an opinion, and my opinion counts as much as yours. There's a difference between having an opinion based on a lack of facts and having a conviction based on truth. You see, in this world, nothing is either good or bad. It's what you think it is. But that's not what God says. God says there is a right and there is a wrong. And there are principles by which we live. And everything is not subjective. You will meet people every day. And some of these are your one that you need to reach for Christ. You will meet people every day that tell you, in effect, I'll believe what I want to believe, you believe what you want to believe, and we're all going to get to the same place. It's not in the Bible, but the response to that is wrong. That word is not in the Bible, but the response of the Word of God is, you're wrong. Because that's not what God says. You see, the danger is if we allow that thinking to continue and it doesn't go without challenge, and if we let people think that all roads lead to heaven, the danger is there are people that you know right now that think they're going to be in heaven that are not going to make it. Because they think a part of the gospel is all they need, or Jesus is one of many, and that all faiths are, are essentially the same. But that's not what the Bible says. Nor does the Bible say, you can't find it in Proverbs anywhere, whatever you believe is okay as long as you're sincere. Well, I can believe that I can jump off a 10-story building and it won't hurt me. And I can sincerely believe that. But when I jump, my sincerity is going to be replaced by severe pain. Because the law of gravity is going to overrule my sincerity. Ravi Zacharias says that most people think all religions are essentially the same and only superficially different. Yet the opposite is true. All religions of the world are essentially different and only superficially true and have things in common. You cannot look at all the world religions and say, oh, all of this makes sense and it all comes together no matter where you come from. For instance, Hindus believe that there are 300,000 gods. Boy, try to keep up with that in a quiet time. There are only a few, but you respect them all, and man is trapped in this endless cycle of rebirth. You know, people think that, why is it people always think that they're going to come back as something better, or in a previous life they were always a king or a queen or a pharaoh? I mean, if you look at all the people that believe in reincarnation, who did the work? The Shinto religion believes that God resides in everything, trees, rocks, soil. Buddhists don't believe in God. Their praying is actually meditating on themselves and speaking to themselves. Islam 
is monotheistic in fact that it believes in one God but it is not the God of the Bible Islam is a monotheistic religion but it is a distant God who cannot be approached and in no way shows any love to anybody in fact Islam and Allah was a tribal God of Muhammad of many gods and Muhammad decided that Allah, his God, was the supreme God. When a man decides who the supreme God is, that man is always wrong. Because God has revealed himself as the supreme one true God. In fact, Erwin Lutzer, the retired pastor of Moody Church, says, If all the religions of the world were equally true, the universe would be a cosmic madhouse. If all the religions of the world are equally true, logic requires that they all be equally false. The conflicting doctrines would cancel one another. Can you imagine if all religions are true and you're trying to get through one gate in heaven? Well, how did you get here? Well, I got here by believing that the, the soil that I was standing on when I died was a God. Oh, well, come on in. How did you get here? Well... I was climbing a tree one day. I was, I was climbing my God and building a tree house in him. And I decided that I would take a step out and I fell. And so I'm here to worship the God of the tree. I'm here because my God is angry and I want to stay way back in the back, but I'm just glad I'm here. Or you can believe in the God of the Bible who says that through Jesus Christ, you have hope and life and forgiveness some people don't like the fact that God is an absolute God well when you're absolutely right and when you're absolutely God you can be absolute when everybody else is wrong you can be absolute God has said of himself he's it there's no other way to the father except through his son God has been very dogmatic and he has a right to be dogmatic because he gave his son to pay the price for our sin so that we could have life in heaven with him one day. And so God is absolute. And so when John writes, he's writing this book some 60 years after the life of Christ and as Christ has gone to heaven and he's writing this book and he deals with absolutes. Now John remembers the apostle of love. But he also deals with the right and wrong, and he cuts straight lines, and he doesn't waver off of those lines. For instance, as we've looked in this study, he deals with moral conduct. And, and John says in 1 John 5, this small book, if you don't obey the commandments of God and say you're a Christian, you're a liar. He deals with doctrine. He says if you deny that Jesus is God in flesh, you don't know God. He deals with love. He says, if you say you love God, but hate your brother, you don't love God. And then he comes to chapter 5, and he saves the best for last. Who is the one who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So let's look at the nature of faith and begin in verse 1 of chapter 5. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Believes is present tense. Born of God is perfect tense. What that means is simply this. Something happened in the past that has an abiding impact on the present. So believes in the perfect tense, 
born of God in the, it believes in the present tense, born of God is in the perfect tense. Something happened in the past. God gave his son, and we, when we embrace his son and believe in his son, it has a permanent abiding impact on the present. This is what it means. This is a hard sentence, so we're putting it on the screen. Believing is the consequence, not the cause of our new birth. Faith is God's gift to us and the first sign of new birth. Now, just leave that up there for a minute. You didn't come up with faith. You and I do not decide when it's going to be time to believe in Jesus. God puts faith in us to believe. He, he is the God who convicts of sin and judgment and of righteousness. And at some point, God quickens your heart and he says, you know, you're lost and you need Jesus. And well, what do I do? You need faith to believe in Jesus. Where does faith come from? It doesn't come from you. Faith is a gift from God. And believing is the consequence, not the cause of the new birth. God is the one who takes the initiative in salvation. You, you will meet people who say, well, I'll get saved when I feel like it. Nobody gets saved when they feel like it. You get saved when the Spirit of God calls you. And when you resist the Spirit, He is a gentleman and He will remove Himself from you. He may come back, but you don't know when God's going to say, fine, you want life your way? I'll give you life your way. And be a gentleman and will back away. Why? Because God convicts to bring conviction to bring conversion. God doesn't convict to make us feel bad about ourselves. He convicts to bring conviction that I have sinned against a holy God and in my conviction I turn to him by faith which he has given me and I believe in him because he says he's the way for me to be saved and my life is changed. Ephesians 2, 4, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By faith, by grace, you have been saved through faith. Not of yourself, lest anyone should boast. Not of yourself. None of us did God a favor by being saved. God did us a favor by convicting us that we needed to be saved because he could have just left us alone and he would have been just in doing it. But God loved us, so loved us that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Salvation is the work of God from beginning to end. It's not us working ourselves up to a point where we say, you know, I'm just about there. I'm just about there where I have enough faith to have salvation. Faith is not worked up. Faith is implanted in us by God to believe his word. The spirit of God takes the word of God and makes us the children of God. So here's the emphasis. The emphasis is on the object of faith, not the subjective experience of believing. We, we have to avoid the idol of emotionalism. Now, I don't know if you've ever said this. I've said this. Or if you've ever met anybody. or You have somebody in your small group that said this. I've said this. I just don't feel saved today. 
That has nothing to do with your salvation. That has nothing to do with your salvation. I mean, you could go to ICU today and meet somebody and say, do you feel saved today? Probably don't. But that has nothing to do with whether or not they are saved or not. If they are saved, it has nothing to do with how they feel. That's an idol. And what we've done is we flipped in our culture because we want a mosh pit Christianity where we can jump up and down and then go live like hell the rest of the week. We flip this thing. I, I come to church to feel good. Find that verse in the Bible. I want a preacher that makes me feel good. Find that verse in the Bible. Hey, if you find that verse in the Bible, I'll start making you feel good. But until then, the truth hurts. The truth hurts. And, and the truth convicts. But why is the truth there? To make us more like Jesus. It's not to make us feel guilty. It's to make us turn our hearts and our minds toward Christ that we are more and more like him as we mature in our faith. We, we've turned it upside down. We want emotions. We, don't, we want feelings. I don't know that song. I just didn't feel anything when I heard that song. That's your flesh talking. That's not your faith talking. Well, I don't know. You know, if you would do a series on, on how to deal with nose hairs, I think I could get my friends to come. If you just do something easy and light, I think that's feelings. That's feelings. That's not faith. God is absolute. And his love is absolute. And his love for us is not this gooey feeling like he just got a Hershey bar. His love for us is unconditional. Do you think God really feels... If you're talking about God's kind of love, do you think God really feel, feels like loving us most of the time? As he watches our behavior? I don't think so. I don't think he feels like loving me. I know he chooses to love me, even when I don't deserve it. And so don't get caught in the emotionalism of faith and miss the facts of faith and the nature of faith because when we come to Christ, there are emotions. I mean, I remember, you know, when I came to Christ, my heart was stirred, my emotions were stirred, but I bought the lie of the enemy when those emotions died down and the enemy started whispering in my ear, you must not have really been saved because you don't feel like you felt a few weeks ago. Now, if you've had that feeling, shake your head this way. You know, I don't feel like I felt that day. I, I don't feel today like, oh man, there was a month or so ago, I just felt on fire for God and I don't feel it today. And the devil whispers in your ear, you must not be saved. You must not be saved. God probably doesn't even love you. And he whispers and he works on you and he wears you down. God does not do his deepest work in the shallowest part of our being. And our emotions are shallow. Listen, we can cry over a Hallmark movie and we can cry over a worship song and the tears look the same. Can I tell you, you don't have to watch Hallmark movies. Here's what happened. Guy meets girl, she comes into small town, he comes into small town, they meet each other, they don't like each other, and they don't kiss until the last minute. 
That's it. That's the plot for all 47,000 Hallmark movies. Every one of them. And you watch them and go, oh. And your wife sits there, doesn't, doesn't she know he loves her? That's emotionalism. I mean, you cry when your team wins. Some of us have teams that don't win that much. We cry when they win. You, you cry when your kid finishes their first dance recital. You cry over certain songs. Don't let that be the judge of your faith. Because your faith does not waver based on emotions. It is grounded in the absoluteness of the Word of God. We're all different. and We're not trying to win people to our experiences. Here, here's one of the dangers in, in evangelism. We try to get people to have the same experience we had. And so if we can get them to say the same words we said or feel the same thing we felt, we want them to have our experience. But listen, introverts and extroverts are different. You know, encouragers, exhorters, prophets, people are all different. Everybody has a different personality. But everybody comes to faith one way. That's through Christ. But everybody has different experiences in how that happens in their life. With some it happens young. With some, it's older. With some, it's in a crisis. We're not trying to win people to our experiences. We are seeking to show people that although we are different, we have one thing in common. We come to God by faith. And everybody comes to God that way. The question is not, do I feel saved right now? Nor is the question, do I feel like God loves me right now? Now, here's an image, and some of you have seen this. First time I saw this, Campus Crusade used it years ago about the train, the fact, the faith, the feeling. And I want you to just look at this train describes everything you need to understand about a relationship with Christ. The facts. Who is Jesus? What has God said about his son? What has Jesus done is that fact available to all? Yes. Faith. I put my faith in the facts. I may have some feelings, but the feelings are the caboose, not the engine. You can have a train without a caboose, and the caboose doesn't need to drive the train. The train doesn't run by the power of the caboose. The train runs by the power of the engine of the facts. We don't depend on feelings. We place our faith in the trustworthiness of God's word and what God has said to us. So, the evidence of faith, last part of verse 1, and whoever loves the father loves the child born of him. Several things here. First of all, faith is demonstrated by love. Faith is demonstrated by love. Now, what did they ask Jesus? Sum it up, Jesus. We've got Ten Commandments, and the Pharisees have added hundreds of laws and rules and regulations. Sum it up for us. Jesus said, okay, very simple. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Those sum up the commandments. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
faith is demonstrated by love. Love what? Jesus said it. Love God, love your neighbor. Love God, love your neighbor. Here, John ties these together. Look at it. He deals with loving others in chapter 4. Now he ties love and faith together. Whoever loves the father loves the child born of him. The bottom line is faith does not lead faith that does not lead to love is meaningless. Is meaningless. It's just cold dead religion. I mean the Pharisees had religion, but they didn't love anybody. They just loved themselves. Love not based on faith is powerless. Now if you read Paul's writings and John's writings in Ephesians 1:15, Colossians 1, 3 and 4, and 1 Thessalonians 1, 3, neither Paul nor John view faith and love as optional equipment. It comes standard with the Christian life. The Christian life is a demonstration of faith and love. Not of faith without love. I, hey, we, we all know Christians. We, we all know at least I know. Maybe you don't. We all know Christians that say they have a lot of faith. They don't love anybody. I mean, they're just mean. They're mean as a devil. I mean, they get up every morning, they drink vinegar, and they eat garlic, just tons of it to keep people away from them. I mean, they don't love anybody. They don't like anybody. They don't love anybody. They don't want to be around anybody. They just want to sit around and just pout, just be mad. You know you're getting that way when you start talking to the television dads. I know none of you ever talk to the television. You know, I can't believe these people out here. You know, like the television's going, we received that message from you. <laughs> Faith with love. Faith with love. My heart broke yesterday when I got a text message that three young teenage boys were killed in Baltimore two blocks from Tolly Wilgus's church. One of them had been in his youth outreach program. The other one was a cousin of a young boy that was in his church. Hey, you can get all kind of political answers to something like that, but if your heart doesn't break that young boys are losing their lives because of the darkness of this culture, something's wrong. I've never met those three boys. I don't know all the circumstances around it, but I know there's a mama somewhere that's crying. And there's a brother or sister somewhere that's hurting. And as Tolly said to me in a, in a text message, this is painful and exhausting, but this is why the church needs to be here. This is painful and it's exhausting. But this is why the church needs to be here. Faith is demonstrated by love. Secondly, faith obeys. Verse 2, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe, obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Faith obeys. Faith obeys because it loves God, and if God tells me to do something, it must be in my best interest. You, you need to understand this. If God says don't do something, 
he's really saying, if you do that, it's going to hurt you. When God says do something, he's saying, if you do that, it will bless you. Faith obeys. His commandments are not burdensome. We're not talking about legalism here. We're talking about the love of God in action and how we respond to him, to our society, to one another, and to our families. The proof of love is loyalty. This is moral character in how we respond. Thirdly, faith overcomes. Verse 4, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Remember, when John is talking about the world, he's talking about the world system, the evil system under the influence of the devil, the fallen corrupt system that will one day be overcome and overruled and overthrown in a new heaven and a new earth when Jesus comes back. It should not surprise us, although it does. I'm amazed that it still surprises us. It should not surprise us that the world doesn't think much of us. That shouldn't surprise us. Because you see, if the world thinks a lot of Christians, they have to admit they're wrong and we're right. And so what do you do? In the non-religious, everybody went to church 50s, and now we're in the almost 2020s, in, in that world, everybody went to church because it helped your business, it helped you in the community, and nobody wanted to be one of those people that didn't go to church because everybody talked about them. Now it doesn't matter. And now we've moved into the persecution of the church and the removal of anything that looks Christian that is a reminder that there is a God and he is holy and he has standards. And so now we live in a world that is anti-Christian. The Bible Belt is anti-Christian. You get pressure in this world system to back away from your faith, to back away from standing for Jesus because the world doesn't like it because if they admit that they see a difference in you, then they have to also admit at the same time that you're right and they're wrong. Chapter 5 and verse 10. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. So if you just look at verse 10 right there, if somebody says, oh, I believe in God, but I don't believe in Jesus, they're not saved. That's why the name of Jesus, nobody's offended by God. But everybody's offended by Jesus. So he says, if you don't believe that God sent his son, you're a liar. You're not saved. Verse 11. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. Not in church membership, not in baptism, not in being good, not in being better than most people. This life, eternal life, is in his son. He who has the son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Now, Satan has been fighting that since the garden. And he's failed at every turn. I love what Ron Dunn used to say. Ron Dunn used to say, most Christians think that 
this battle that we're in with the world, this, this battle is like a football game, and in the end, just before Jesus comes back, we're going to kick a 60-yard field goal, and we're going to win 17 to 14. Just barely, but we are going to win. He said, this is not a contest. Satan is a defeated foe. He was told that in the garden. He was told that, that there's going to come one, and he's going to bruise your head. He was defeated when he tried to keep Israel in bondage. He was defeated when he tried to kill all the children in Bethlehem to get to the Messiah. He was defeated in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was defeated at the cross, and he is defeated at the empty tomb. He does not have the power to overcome you unless you give it to him. He's not large and in charge. He's on a leash. And he can only run so far. Now, that he's lost your soul, he wants to destroy your witness. And he wants to destroy your testimony. And so the minute you mess up, he goes, see, I wouldn't witness to anybody if I was you because I guarantee you they know you messed up. Hey, look at your neighbor. We've all messed up. Your neighbor's messed up. You're messed up. I've messed up. But we have, 1 John 2, an advocate with the Father. Amen. And your advocate is stronger than your adversary. And he tries to destroy our witness, and he tries to blind the eyes of unbelievers, but he is a defeated foe. Three times in verses 4 and 5, it says, overcomes the world. The world wants to overwhelm us, but three times he says, we've overcome the world. Verse 4, has overcome. Now look at verse 4 for a minute. We're back up. We're backing up. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Has overcome. That's aorist tense. And what does that have to do with English? It has to do with this. The aorist tense indicates a victory that has been achieved once and for all. The victory of Jesus over death and hell and the grave at the cross was a once-for-all victory. He didn't have to keep coming back every year at Refresh and dying on a cross to give us victory. He's already given us victory. See, we are not fighting. Oh, listen, if you get this, it'll change your life. We are not fighting to be victorious. We are fighting from a victory that has already been won. Somebody say amen. amen. We are fighting from a victory that has already been won. Verse 5, overcomes present tense, means it is potentially a daily experience to overcome and to be an overcomer. The battle is not over, but the outcome is assured. You're in a battle, but the outcome is assured. As a believer, you'll die one death, but you won't die a second death because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The devil can't get you once God's got you. We need to believe that, and we need to walk in the power of that. I, I was just thinking while I was working on this message, if, if Jesus has overcome death and hell in the grave, then he can overcome anything else 
that I think he can't overcome. Anything else. Everything else. And you ought to write it in your Bible that not just death and hell and the grave, but everything in between. John 16, 33. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. He's the overcomer, so I can be an overcomer. I don't overcome in my strength. I don't overcome in my power. I overcome in his strength. Now let's get to the last thing quickly. The power of faith, verses 18 through 21. We know that no one who is born of God sins. Now remember, he's not talking about we never sin, never commit an isolated sin. He's talking about lives in a lifestyle of sin. Perpetually sinning. But he who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. Look at how many times he says we know. Verse 18, we know. Verse 19, we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God in eternal life. Little children, guard yourself from idols. Three quick things. Faith gives me a hatred for sin. Verse 18. Faith gives me a hatred for sin. When I sin, it hurts me and I hate it and I want to confess it. I don't want to dwell in it. I don't want to ignore it and I don't want to excuse it. If I'm living in faith in the absolute truth of the Word of God, it gives me a hatred for sin. My conduct is evidence of my conversion. You want to know who's saved? Watch their conduct. It's evidence of conversion. Jesus said, by their fruits you'll know them. Secondly, faith gives me a proper worldview. Verse 19, we know that assurance. We know that we are of God. We also know that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Faith gives me a proper worldview. And you think, well, you know, this world's got some good ideas here and there. I mean, these people have some, some good thoughts. Can, let, me, let me give you an overarching principle for the world. Crooked people don't think straight. <laughs> Crooked people don't think straight. Oh, he's a good guy. You know, he does some good things. He's a drug dealer, but he does some good things. He's a good guy. Now, he's a mob boss, but he does some good things. I mean, he's very, very generous to charities. He just, every time he gives money to a charity, he says, one day... I may ask you for a favor. <laughs> Faith gives me a proper worldview. I look out and I see the world and I realize that in that world there's nothing but death and sorrow. I see people with broken lives. I see families broken apart. I see a community that is in darkness because it refuses to see the light. And I have the right worldview. I love the world the way God loves it, but I don't love it the way I shouldn't love it. Thirdly, faith gives me understanding. Verses 20 and 21. Little children, guard yourself from idols. He just closes abruptly. Have nothing to do with idols. Truth keeps us from lies, and it keeps us from idolatry. 
fact, Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, that a Christian is one who has turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. You know what an idol is? An idol is anything that takes priority in your life over Jesus. That's what an idol is. It's anything, it's anyone that takes priority in your life over Jesus. Uh, let me just ask you this question. Knowing that you have a father who sent a son to die on a cross to pay for your sins and sent his Holy Spirit to dwell inside of you to give you the power to walk in victory and to live by faith and to stand on the promises of God knowing that you have that. Shouldn't it be simple and easy to keep yourself from idols? Because you live by faith. Let's stand together with heads bowed and eyes closed. If you're here today and you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, I want to invite you, the minute the first word is sung, I want to invite you to step out and come down these aisles and find one of our men and say, I need to give my heart to Jesus today. Don't buy the lies of the world. They're going to lead you to a dead end. It's about God convicting us of our need for a Savior. Today I invite you to give your heart. The Spirit of God is speaking to you. And one of the things He's saying to you is today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. Nobody gets to God but through His Son, Jesus Christ. And so when we sing, I'm going to invite you to step out and to come and to give your heart to Christ. But if you're here today and you may be like a lot of Christians, you're up and down and hot and cold and living on emotionalism instead of living by faith, would you just draw a circle around that seat that you're standing in front of or come down to this altar and say, God, I am tired of being ruled by my feelings. I want to live by faith. I want to walk by faith. I want to think with a renewed mind. I want to live by your word, not by how I feel at any given moment. So I'm going to pray. They're going to sing. And as they sing, you step out and you do what God has spoken to your heart. Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you that our faith is not built on feelings but on facts truth established thousands of years ago that a Messiah would come, that he would die for our sins, that he would rise again and that he would come back. Lord, by faith we have put our lives in your hands and believed your truth that you are the way, the truth, and the life. Bring people to Jesus this morning, I pray. Amen. You come.